got a great song to play, you know. Just, uh, uh. Hello? Have you ever snubbed a lady? Um, we had a technical problem. Are we on? Come on. Yeah, <laughs> we're on there. Come on, swear. Shit! Now the anecdote forecast issued by Crunch and Roll on behalf of today's guest. Mutual adoration, mild, developing strong. Nostalgic memories of long-forgotten stations, eight or nine, increasing ten at times. Words of praise, increasing for a time, good. Stories of the good old days, heavy, being sacked, occasionally moderate. Earning money for embarrassing public appearances, strong at first, then fading. Being hired by someone just before they were fired, heavy, persistent. Mention of Kenny Everett, yes. Welcome to Crunch and Roll. I'm Foxy, done breakfast shows across the UK, more recently some programmes and producing on the BBC. And today's guest was somebody that I briefly worked with in the past, so it was lovely to catch up with him after many years. It's Sean Tilly. Now, he grafted hard to get into the industry and worked at some big stations with even bigger stars. And we chat about how he worked with his heroes at Capital, his his night DJing at a club called Bonkers, and a scary moment with Celine Dion's Minders. Just to let you know, it's a little bit sweary and does contain some adult content. Oh, yeah. I'm going to use this term very loosely for most people, but this man, in in my opinion, is... I'm scared to say, is a legend. Sean Tilly, how are you, mate? I'm very well, thanks. Good God, I thought you were going to say something else then. I thought, how honest is he going to be, you know, because this fella's got so much dirt on me uh, from only a year spent together in Hull. But my goodness me, I mean, I know we'll probably touch on it. Well, in fact, we definitely will. But what a year that was with you and, and the team at uh, Viking in Hull, but I'm very well. And um, I'm going to return the the favour now. When we did work together, uh, you and a guy called Tom were doing the breakfast show at the time on that radio station. And I came on after you with the mid-morning show, I think. Not only did I think you were an absolutely brilliant listener when I was going into work every morning, but also you boys really, really looked after me. It was a difficult year, that, for me in my my personal life. But um, my goodness me, you boys and and Simon, your producer, and 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 lots of other people as well. And when I say Simon, I mean the two Simons, the one that you're with right now, yeah. and also yeah. uh, Greeny as well. But so many other people in Hull. It was it was a wonderful time for me, and everybody looked after me so well when I really needed it. So uh, a long awaited. As far as I'm concerned, thank you for that, because I'll always appreciate it. Bless you, mate. Well, we'll, we'll get on to Viking because, um, I mean, <laughs> Sean, your your CV is is nuts. I mean, we we could we <laughs> it's it's the longest so far, I think. So I mean is it? the reason for that is I got sacked so many times. <laughs> yeah, but they're the stories we want to hear on Crunch and Roll. <laughs> so let, let's go right back to the start. So you, you are Welsh. Um yes. and you started your career in, in South Wales during the mid eighties. Blimey That's sure. Right. Yeah. yeah, I know. Where I, know. Was that? I don't know that um, I think it was about two at the time. Uh, I was uh, I was definitely the youngest uh, DJ on on uh, ILR as we used to call it. Uh, yeah, I was still in school. I was uh, in my last year in school. I'd I'd been doing hospital radio 
And then I did university radio. I wasn't a student or anything like that, but the university radio station in Swansea was a really cool place to be. And a couple of the hospital radio DJs uh, started doing shows down there. And, and I began as a nightclub DJ when I was 14. So not only was I on the radio, hospital radio, from about the age of 12, actually, collecting requests and things like that. And eventually they gave me my own program. Uh, but in those days, because we are going back a long old time now to the very, very early 1980s, nobody batted an eyelid if you were 14 years of age and DJing in a pub. Nobody cared if you were underage. Nobody ever checked. Uh, providing you could DJ, then you got gigs. And I got loads of gigs. So some of the nightclub DJs that I knew... I were also doing shows on the university radio station. And, um, you know, some of the students there uh, ended up having careers in, in radio themselves. A really good bunch of people. So from there, uh, they were doing a youth program on my local commercial radio station, Swansea Sound, which was probably only about 10 years old then. And um, yeah, so there, it, I, I, this is so long ago, it was before there was a network chart show. And it was on a Sunday afternoon in that slot. And eventually I sort of joined the program reviewing new singles and things like that. And then they had a bit of a revamp and I was one of the co-hosts of the show. And from there, um, when Swansea Sound went to 24-hour programming, and when they introduced the overnights, I got given a few overnights uh, and things like that. But it was not where I wanted to be. By this time, I'd left school and I had aspirations and dreams of going to London. I'd already been to London quite a few times to see if I could sort of um, start talking to people and create opportunities there, which I did. As soon as I left school, I was gone. And I don't think I really figured in the plans of the programme controller of Swansea Sound. I don't think he really saw me as a viable prospect for the future, to be honest. Um, <laughs> he probably got that right in retrospect. <laughs> so Swansea Sound, and then, I mean, uh, your CV, there are some big hitters on there, Sean. I mean, some big. I mean, let's talk. I want to talk about Capital. I managed to get in at Capital at the weekends because um, I'd already sat in on a number of shows. The main one being Alan Freeman on a Saturday morning, who was a, an incredible mentor to me. I, I started writing to him uh, probably from about the age of eight or nine. Uh, when he was on Radio 1. And, and and we carried on sort of exchanging letters and things like that. So from about the age of 12, um, I, and what was wonderful about this is that I had two aunties who lived in London at that time. And um, the youngest, who was more like a big sister to me, I would go down and stay with her in London. And then on a Saturday morning, I would jump on the tube um, and, and uh, get to Warren Street on the Victoria Line and jump out and... Uh, you know, so young. And I'd look across Euston Road and I'd see that incredible Capital Radio building next to Thames Television. And I would go in there and I would sit in and I would help out Alan Freeman and his producer, Keith Dickens, uh, during the programme. And then Kenny Everett used to walk in about 10 to 12. So my first ever memory of Kenny Everett and I knew that he was going to be following Alan Freeman the first time I sat in on the show. And I was so excited, not only to be opposite Alan Freeman and watching him do a chart countdown and that legendary, da, 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 you know, that rundown that he became so famous for. I used to get to see him do that live. And then Kenny Everett walked into the studio at Capital Radio and it used to be a half circular sofa round the equipment. And in he came carrying a huge 
rack of carts, you know, cartridges that we used to play yeah. with all these sound effects and all these jingles, these pre-sung jingles on there and everything. And all I could see were his tiny little feet underneath this enormous cart rack. <laughs> and he sat next to me on the edge of the sofa, uh, waiting to talk to Fluff on air when they did their handover. And I always remember it. I'll never forget it. I used to have the same conversation with him every week, to be honest with you, because within six days, he'd completely forget who I was and then reintroduce himself to me every Saturday <laughs> when I started helping out Fluff on, on a full, you know, on a weekly basis. And he's, he went, uh, the first time, he went, uh, hello, who are you? And I said, because uh, this is Kenny Everett. I went, uh, uh, hello, hello, Kenny. My name is Sean. Hello, Sean. I'm Ev. Because he didn't want to be called Kenny. He wanted to be called Ev. And I, I remember looking at him thinking, well, yes, you're Kenny Everett. I know exactly who you are. And he was so lovely. He said, where do you come from, Sean? And I said, well, I'm, I'm from Swansea in South Wales. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. You know, not thinking that we had the DVLA there, for goodness sake. And uh, he said to me, <laughs> he said, I remember Swansea. He said, when I got sacked by the BBC, he said, I had a farmhouse in, in well, I won't continue to do the ever impersonation. And he said, we had a farmhouse uh, in Wales, him and his wife, uh, Lee, uh, because he was married in those days. And he used to record shows for Radio Luxembourg to be played out on the air in the Grand Duchy. And he told me that he used to drive uh, sometimes down to Swansea High Street Station to put the tapes of his shows for Radio Luxembourg on the train. And and we had that connection immediately. And I, I mean, I, I would never say that I knew Kenny. I don't think very many people really knew him. But all I know is I would see him every Saturday and he was just so lovely. And I didn't care that he had the same conversation with me every week. I didn't <laughs> care that within six days he'd forgotten who the heck I was. Um, it was Kenny Everett and he, and he was just wonderful. And all the stories that you hear about Kenny Everett from his colleagues, um, I think that love that they had for him, more than even the respect for what he did on air, because he was a complete one-off. You really hear it filtering through. There was a lot of love for Kenny, and I can quite understand why, even based on the, the very tiny experience that I had of him. So that was me at Capital Radio the first time. Of course, I ended up back there many years later as a DJ. But, of course, we will come to that on Crunch and Roll. <laughs> now, See the way I did that? Yeah, See mate. the way I Hey, Foxy, I'm after your gig. You can have it, mate, if you want. I'll tell you, you're far better than I am, sure. Now, so so Capital, um, working with, I mean, true legends. Uh, where's next after that? Well, I mean, I wanted to be a DJ, didn't I? And uh, one of the things that uh, Alan Freeman was so kind uh, doing was putting a word in for me with with lots of, of people. On a few visits to London uh, prior to me moving there, I'd got to know the guys at uh, Radio Topshop in Oxford Circus really, really well. And they had an incredible team of, of DJs. They'd already seen one or two go off and, and uh, become very successful. For instance, a um, dear friend of mine still to this day, Paul McKenna, had whizzed off to Radio Caroline and then taken over the breakfast show at uh, Chilton Radio then. Tim Smith was another one who just at the time that I was getting in at Topshop was off to Radio Luxembourg, which was a massive deal in those days. Uh, Tony West was another guy who'd done really well. Adrian John was the most successful going to Radio 1. And there were many other people at Topshop then who were on the verge of, uh, of achieving great things in their career too. So I managed to get in there and also... Um, 
not long afterwards, HMV, a little bit further down Oxford Street, uh, was about to open. It was the largest record store in the world, and they would have a radio station, and they were advertising for DJs. So at the same time, I managed to uh, to get in there as a DJ. So literally, I would do a show at HMV, uh, one end of Oxford Street, at the Tottenham Court Road end, and then I would head up to Oxford Circus and do another show on, on Radio Topshop. And Alan Freeman, meantime at Capital, had introduced me to, uh, well, also the, the boss of Radio Topshop, who was also a, a DJ at Capital, Steve. And then there was another guy called Jonathan, who was an engineer at Capital, who would become a DJ himself. And he was running uh, the in-store radio station at Olympus Sports. Now, that was the other end of Oxford Street uh, to, <laughs> towards Hyde Park Corner. So I managed to get a gig there. So on a Saturday, I used to head, <laughs> you'll love this. I used to do the first shift in the morning at HMV when it opened about nine o'clock in the morning. I'd do a couple of hours there. Then I'd go up and do a, a Saturday lunchtime at um, Radio Topshop. Then I'd carry on down to the other end of Oxford Street to do a couple of hours at Olympus Sports. And then I used to bounce on the Victoria line at Oxford Circus, get to Victoria Station, catch a, uh, a National Express train home to Swansea, which was about three hours, I think. And then I used to go and do a club gig. I, I kept my Saturday night club gig in wow. Swansea. How much money did you make on that day I then, Sean? I was coining it. I'm glad you asked me that because I was <laughs> I, between the four gigs, I think I was making something like 25 quid. Uh, you know, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I mean, this, this was a fortune to me at that age. Um, no, yeah. I mean, no, seriously. I mean, for, for the age that I was, um, it was a, you know, a few quid more than, but I was, I was doing it. But the most important thing is I was loving it. Absolutely loving it. So it was during, um, living in London during the week and then heading back to Wales at the weekends. But I, I and, and if I could, I'd do an overnight show on Swansea Sound as well. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's great to have that much energy when you're that age, isn't it? But uh, I mean, it yeah. wasn't long before I had to move, uh, to London full time. And then, uh, I got my biggest break at that time uh, because some incredible things happened to me at such a, a young age and um are you happy for me to segue into this story yeah, absolutely or, or, you crack on sure want, well, this is i'm gonna be honest me? this is the easiest podcast so far i'm just i'll, <laughs> I'll kick back and relax mate you just tell me your story yeah uh, well i mean I, I, I was so ambitious i mean and i was crap you know i was so awful on the radio i was bl bloody dreadful you know uh, but i I just wanted it so badly, and I, and I was so ambitious. And I, I sent a tape in to Doreen Davis, who was the uh, second in command at Radio 1, but she had enormous power. And uh, she was um, underneath... Uh, Johnny Beerling was the controller by then, and Doreen was, uh, you know, his uh, lieutenant. She really took a shine to me. I think it was just my enthusiasm, because, like I say, I really was... I mean, if I ever listen back to anything from that time, it's truly awful. But um, she saw something in me uh, and invited me in, and she called it a face check, I think. So she wrote to me and she said, wow. I think you should come in for a face check. And she said, look, you need a lot of work, but I really do think that you're one for us for the future, which was just astonishing. I remember walking out of that building, Egton House, and I remember feeling a million dollars just because somebody at Radio 1 had said, you're going to come and work here one day, you know. And then Doreen retired about 18 months no. later. But having said that, um, that's not where the story ended because um, she said, and 
I will always be eternally grateful to her for this. She said, I think you need to meet somebody who has just stopped working here and he's gone to another part of the BBC and I think he'll like you and I think there's an awful lot he can do to make you better and realise your potential. And she did indeed put me in touch with a guy called Dave Tate, who had been um, a long-serving Radio 1 producer, an incredible producer, produced the likes of Steve Wright in the afternoon, Kid Jensen's Tea Time Show and the Noel Edmonds Breakfast Show, incredible shows. And he'd whizzed off to become head of the music programmes at BBC World Service. And the music shows of BBC World Service were produced by Radio 1 producers. And I went to meet Dave Tate, and he was extraordinary kind to me and he helped me enormously he listened to my demo tape he said well look you know you need to slow down uh you haven't really developed a style of your own yet you may be trying to sound like your heroes uh, and he worked with all those heroes so slowly but surely um he um gave me an awful lot of help to knock all this stuff out out of me so eventually i ended up starting to voice trailers and then Dave let me on air and, and, I, and I did a couple of shows and walking around that building was incredible. Bush House was this titanic BBC building. So just walking in there and seeing Radio 1 and Radio 2 DJs, people like uh, Terry Wogan, um, Gloria Hunniford, Simon Bates, you know, Mike Reed, Paul Burnett, Ed Stewart, David Hamilton, Adrian Just, all these people walking around the building that I would get to know. Uh, some of them much better than and most of them great friends of mine forever. Little did I know at that time. And, um, you know, to be amongst these people at such a young age was incredible. And prior to this, I must say that after, you know, after doing stuff at Radio Topship, I'd managed to um, get some work at Radio Caroline. So I had been doing, I'd been out to the North Sea a couple of times and, and I had done shows on the Ross Revenge, Radio Caroline, but that was not where I wanted to be. You know, when I got out to Radio Caroline, it, these guys that weren't that much older than me were going around the ship going, hey man, you know, loving awareness. Oh, no, it's cosmic, man. That's, 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 like, that's how you are now, Sean. <laughs> exactly. Little did I, but at the time I wasn't like that. You know what I mean? Uh, and they were all sort of, uh, you know, funny substances in, in, in the air and, and all this. Mind you, you know, partial to a bit of that, uh, a bit of an exclusive there in the in those days. But it was all like, it was, it, was, it was it was not where I wanted to be. So after and and they hated me on Radio Caroline. The bosses there, I mean, because they belong, you know, they believed in that sort of old Radio Caroline philosophy. Ronan O'Reilly, the uh, you know who I have massive respect for, who uh, who you know Radio Caroline was was his idea. He set it up, and and it did change the landscape of um of uk radio with those other offshore pirate radio stations and it's lovely to be able to say that i did do caroline and and when it came back on air in in the mid 80s it had a really great audience because local commercial radio in the southeast wasn't really that good at the time you know um that all changed when richard park got the gig at capital but prior to that capital radio was quite a sort of middle of the road listen so caroline had an audience and it was a great place to be and to be heard um but when i got this chance to do the bbc world service that was and and when i told the bosses of radio caroline they were horrified because radio caroline was everything 
uh, anti-establishment, even in the 80s. I mean, it hated the BBC. Uh, but that's, you know, I was um, ambitious and, and Radio Caroline wasn't on my radar. I kind of ended up there just through that connection with Radio Topshop. Very glad to have done it, though, particularly after all these years. Uh, but no, the BBC World Service was incredible. And after, you know, doing the BBC World Service, it set me up for my next gig, which really was a dream come true. Cunty, uh, cunt, cunty uh, uh, We apologise, sir. We just play records till eight, nine, when do we finish? I'm not drunk. I've had a couple of drinks. I'm not drunk. <laughs> So, Sean, I'm guessing you're talking about the big one, Radio Luxembourg. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Goodness me. And it, and it was. Um, at the time, if you didn't have a job on Radio 1 or if you weren't on Capital, every local commercial radio DJ in the UK was trying to get a gig at Radio Luxembourg. And I used to see the demo tapes every week, so I know. And there were some incredible people that even in the second half of the 1980s were trying to get on there. So I was so lucky. And really doing that little bit of work at BBC World Service massively helped me because it got me around legends and I would be around more legends when I got to Radio Luxembourg. Again, the Radio 1 DJs and the Luxembourg DJs and the Capital DJs of the 70s and 80s were radio gods to me. These were people that I massively uh, loved and respected and hero worshipped. And that sounds ridiculous, really, when, when you're thinking about entering a world or trying to enter a world where these people, if you're very lucky, will become your colleagues and even your friends. And uh, but that's and, and, and I'm not the only one. Loads of us felt like that before we were lucky enough to get big gigs. But uh, Radio Luxembourg was still a massive, massive station. And I was thrilled to be on there. And, and when I got the job, Little did I know, getting back to Alan Freeman that I was talking about earlier on, he, uh, of course, had been a Radio Luxembourg DJ out in the Grand Duchy in the late 50s. And in the 60s, he used to record his shows at Radio Luxembourg's London studios in Hartford Street, where I would go for my interviews and eventually get the job. He'd been putting a word in for me, uh, which is the measure of the man. He was, he was just wonderful. He, he had told Radio Luxembourg, there's this DJ that you should be looking out for. So when I did try and get in there, they were aware of me because Alan Freeman had been bigging me up, but I, I hadn't said anything to me because he was such a modest guy and, and, and I just found out by accident, really. And the lovely story is that uh, when I uh, got the job and before I went out, I flew out to the Grand Duchy. It was so exciting, flying out to the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg to do, meet the team and do my first programme. Alan Freeman had recorded me a voiceover. Uh, he was working at Capital still at the time. It was it was a little bit before he returned to Radio 1 and he dropped it on a reel, dropped it into Radio Luxembourg at 38 Half Street in London. And uh, when I went there to pick up my aeroplane tickets to fly out to Luxembourg, um, they gave me the tape that he, um, he recorded his voiceover on uh, with a little message on the front of it, which I've still got. And, uh, and I played it out on my first ever show at Radio Luxembourg and f for many shows after that. So, yeah, that was uh, hitting national radio for the very first time at Radio Luxembourg, which was still such a massive deal in those days. Sean, I, I need to hear that fluff uh, name drop. That sounds amazing. Um, I mean, there's, uh, there's nobody as of yet on Crunch and Roll that's got... Um, <laughs> I mean, it's got such a link to, to such a legend. An Alan Freeman voiceover. Okay, you can listen to it right now. Here it comes. Not off. Sean Tilly. He's your man, right? 
I mean, there's so much I could say about Radio Luxembourg because I was there for quite a long time, but um, becoming not only a colleague, but best friends with people like Bob Stewart. I idolized Bob Stewart. He was the voice of Radio Luxembourg. I used to go to sleep at night listening to that booming, big American voice of Bob Stewart, even though he came from Liverpool. Yeah, Bob Stewart came from Liverpool, but he had this big, booming Texan accent. He was the voice of Radio Luxembourg. I grew up listening to him doing the chart show and, and various other programs. We not only became friends uh, because he left Radio Luxembourg for a couple of years, tried his luck in, in America, and then came back to Radio Luxembourg a couple of years after that with his wonderful American wife, Cynthia. And uh, But uh, she didn't stay. She had work in, in Dallas. She went back to it. Bob ended up staying in my house for two years, lived, you know, upstairs in the house that I rented in Luxembourg. We did everything together. We became the best of friends. So that was incredible. Mike Hollis, another big, big mate of mine at Radio Luxembourg. And also Stuart Henry, Stuart and Ollie Henry, to, to be with the last DJ really to join Radio Luxembourg, who had a working relationship as well as a, a friendship with Stuart and Ollie Henry, who was so dear to me. Sadly, both departed now. Stuart Henry was a legend of Radio One and, and Luxembourg in particular. And, uh, and I became such close friends with them all. Absolutely loved it. So Radio Luxembourg was more than a radio station to me. It was a family and I was massively proud to be part of it. All right. So look, I mean, we, we could be here for weeks. So I'm going to kind of, <laughs> I'm going to skip forward slightly. I know you went to the Midlands for, for a period of time, but I, I did. I, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I kind of want to touch on, on, on closer today and, and you, cause you went to Radio Clyde and then I want to talk about our time or your time at uh, EMAP. So tell me about Clyde. Cause that, that was a big station, wasn't it? Absolutely huge. And I think when I went there in about 1994, having been at Signal and Mercia, uh, and no disrespect to those stations, they 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 were you know really good stations. But Clyde was one of the big big uh, ILRs as as they were. And up in Glasgow, everybody listened to it. It was my first experience of working for a radio station where everybody listened to you. I'd, I'd never experienced that before because although I'd worked on, on some top stations, some people would know you from those stations, but then there would be others that would listen to others, particularly when you're on national radio. But Glasgow, everybody listened to it. It, it was phenomenal. And I did a late night program. So quite often I would do a gig in town at a club, maybe an early gig in a bar or something, go and do the late night program on Radio Clyde. And then if I could go and do another gig at a club after that, uh, because it was such a vibrant city, even in those days, it never slept. I must tell you a funny story about a gig that I did do in, in Glasgow, though. Um, I did it with two other Radio Clyde DJs and they were Glaswegians and um, everybody knew them. I'd not long been on the radio station, to be honest, even though I'd gone up to Glasgow and done gigs in my Radio Luxembourg days. But here I was as a Radio Clyde DJ. We rocked up at this club, and I'll never forget it. It was called Bonkers. And that, if ever there was a name of a club which suited it, it was Bonkers. So I turned up there, and they had a poster at the front of the nightclub advertising that there was this Radio Clyde party night with these two other DJs and me. They let those two in. The, it comes to me and I get to the door and the doorman stops me from going in. And he says, where's the you're going, pal? You know, and all this. And I said, well, you know, um, I'm doing this gig now with those two that you've just let in. We're doing a Radio Clyde party night here. And uh, he said, I've no idea who you are, pal. You're not coming in, you know, and then told me to do something. Uh, two words. And I'm sure you can guess 
what it was, you know. And but the but most bizarre thing of all is, on the poster was a photo of me. So I was, try- <laughs> I was trying to remonstrate with this big burly Glaswegian doorman that that's me on the poster. There is there any chance that you can go and get the manager so he might let me in? Right. Eventually, the manager did come to my aid about 10 minutes later after I tried to explain to this guy that that post, he would he was having none of it. That doesn't look much like you, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I must just tell you another funny story very quickly about my time at Radio Clyde as well. There was uh, another DJ on the radio station. Um, I think his name was Gary Marshall. Yeah, that was it. And... Um, we got on pretty well during the time that I was up there and because uh, we used to do a lot of gigs together. But the radio station sent him and me to go and meet Celine Dion, who was doing a gig at this, I think it might have been the Symphony Hall in Glasgow or something, if they've got such a thing there. But it was it's kind of like this highbrow venue. And the idea was that we presented Celine Dion with a gold disc from the radio station because uh, Think Twice had been number one in the charts and whatever album that was from, we were going to present her with this gold disc and there were photographers there and the local media, uh, newspapers and what have you. Uh, Stretch Limo came and picked us up, which the record company laid on and and we went into the centre of Glasgow and we presented, we met Celine uh, backstage uh, after or before the concert and we've got the gold disc. And we present it to her. She is absolutely surrounded by her security team. Uh, This is me in the presence of even bigger, burlier bouncers this time who weren't Glaswegian. And as we're handing over the the gold disc to Celine and uh, the photographers are snapping away, Gary says to Celine, I couldn't believe this. He said, uh, yeah, Celine, uh, I don't suppose you fancy after the show coming out with me and Sean for a kebab, dear. <laughs> if he did, if he did, her security guys looked at him in a way that made us want to vacate the premises uh, within 60 seconds. And I said to Gary, let's get out of here. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Sean, my, my, some of my memories, and, and most of them were quite drunken uh, with yourself when we, <laughs> when, we, when we spent time at Viking together. I, I can say one thing, that you're not scared of Dorman, and I'm not going to elaborate on that story anymore, but you'll stand up for oh. yourself, Sean, when you need to. Well, I think, you know, I, I was brought up, you know, in, a, in a, a family of boxers. I even boxed myself when I was a kid. And, uh, and, and going back to the days when I was doing gigs at 14 years of age, I'd have to go and get my money at the end of the night. And some people, some people didn't want to pay you. And because they knew that they were young, they would tell you to, to go and do one as well or, or in words <laughs> like that. So you had to. And my dad as well, you know, very much sort of brought me up that way. But uh, no, I mean, I've, I've always believed in, in the fact that you've you got to be nice to people. You've got to be straight to people. And respect is a big thing. I've always given respect to people. And I'm a bit old school like that. You know what I mean? But um, I believe in treating people well. And most people, not all, but most people I've worked with in, in radio, it's a funny old business. You know, radio people are strange. And, uh, and in many ways, I'm not really a radio. I love the business. I am passionate about radio. And, and, I, and I feel that I've deserved my, my place in radio because of how hard I've worked and the passion that I've always given it. But in every other way, I'm not a radio person. I'm not a showbiz person. I'm a Swansea Jack mushroom. I come from Swansea and that's the way we are, you know. And, and, and I've kind of gone about radio as a Swansea Jack. And, and that, 
know, it's unsettled people sometimes, but at least I wear my heart on my sleeve and I've always been straight yeah. with people. And that's yeah, very, absolutely. and that's very much how it continued for me. You know, after leaving Radio Clyde, went back to Wales for a bit, set up the wave there. I was the first breakfast show, well, the first ever voice on, on my hometown station, the wave, which was great. And then I went to Radio City, another ginormous radio station in Liverpool where everybody listened. Radio City at that time, I think was the best radio station in the United Kingdom. I, and, and the fact that it won, you know, to the Sony station of the year twice out of three years at that time, I think, you know, kind of it does sort of back up what I'm saying. It was an incredible time. And, and probably the halcyon days of the radio station, apart from obviously its first few years, on air, and and then from there to working with you, because I moved around EMAP, you know, did a bit in Manchester as well at Key 103 and Magic, and then uh, rocked up at, at Viking and had the most incredible year. I went to Hull and back uh, <laughs> for a year in 2005 with those reprobates, Foxy and Tom. Well, I mean, uh, there was a lot of alcohol involved, and I think I, everybody everybody I speak to who has an association with Viking just says the same thing. Your time at EMAP, I mean, good memories? I mean, I do want to get onto the EMAP Awards and your experience of those. Uh, well, the EMAP Awards are incredible, weren't they? Because um, most of my memory of it, they had it in Sheffield a couple of times, I think, when I first joined. But uh, then we'd all sort of descend upon London, wouldn't we? And, and, and it was just, well, it was just mad times because the, the, the bosses were brilliant. They, they you know, they, I don't know where they used to get the other DJs from who'd all fill in for us for, for the day. So all these people that had never been on the radio station before would rock up for that day so that we could always off to London. And we'd stay in not particularly fancy hotels, but they weren't bad ones. Bower as it is now, I'm not sure what it's like, but EMAP in those days, they really did sort of uh, row the boat out and, and treat us well. And yeah, all the radio stations descended upon London together. It was a bit of a sort of, um, wow, I mean, it was, it was uh, a pressure cooker environment because there was so much sort of particularly when the drinks were flowing uh yeah. what what would be initially sort of kind of friendly banter would then turn to people saying my radio station's better than your radio station and, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff uh, but i think in the main most of us got on there were a couple of flare-ups as i remember but of course i was nothing to do with those uh you know i would just i would just be an observer but i was very very proud of my stations very proud of the radio stations that i worked for in, in emap and uh yeah, but I Viking uh, holds a very special place in my heart because it was not the best time in my personal life. And, um, you know, I really at that time needed to be surrounded by some very lovely people who, um, who took the time to get to know me properly and find out what I was all about. And, and, and there was a kinship and a friendship there. And even now, when I think back, and it wasn't just the guys on air, um, you know, I had some marvellous friends, still friends of mine to this day, working in the sales department and things like that. Our managing director at the time, Mike Borden, a real character. And 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 we, we played together and we, we worked together. And it was just a very, very special time. And you guys in particular really took me under your wing and, and looked after me. And the best thing about it all was we would get absolutely annihilated, parting hard, uh, and and then you'd sometimes you wouldn't go to bed, you'd go straight into doing the <laughs> breakfast show. I'd I'd go home for about an hour and a half's kip. 
in my flat, which ironically used to be above the BBC. And then I used to come in all bleary eyed. I'd bring, <laughs> bring a bit of breakfast in and I'd look at you guys who were doing the breakfast show on pure adrenaline, looking as though you were about to collapse. And as soon as you went into that nine o'clock news, that was it. That was it. You'd spill on the floor in front of me or <laughs> before I was, uh, you know, revving up to do the top 10 at 10 or whatever. Do you know, uh, you, you mentioned, I mean, for me personally, one of my biggest inspirations in the industry, Mike Borden, I just, I, I loved Mike so much and still do. And, and, and you know, rarely speak to him now because he's off down south and, and managing a superstar artist. But um, one of my favourite stories, because Mike used to encourage us to drink and he was the managing director. <laughs> And it was, he, he was the worst out of everybody on the team. And I remember, I remember being in a, in a really crap little bar called Cheeky Monkeys. At, um, oh, I remember uh, yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was 24 hours opening and we were still there at half four and Mike had a load of tequilas. He's like, come on, Foxy, get it down your neck, lad. I'm like, Mike, I'm on air in an hour and a half. He went, don't worry about that. Anyway, he was. I, 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 obviously, I went on air and I was drunk and I was bad and I was late. And then he had to sit in the HR meeting whilst I got <laughs> <laughs> whilst I got a written warning. And I just kept looking at Mike, going, "This is your he fault." A, he was a bad boy, wasn't he? He was. <laughs> he was. He was the one of the most. Well, probably uh, him and a guy called Tom Hunter, who was the managing director at Radio City Liverpool, probably the two most rock and roll MDs. I've ever had in my life because both of them, my goodness me, they loved to party. And what was lovely about those guys is that, um, and I've worked for lots of other brilliant people as well, but those guys in particular, they were so good because they were the figurehead for the radio station. They were very smart guys commercially. They had very good programmers working underneath them and they allowed the programmers to program. But at the same time, because they come from a programming background themselves, they, they still had great ideas for what the radio station should do on and off the air. And, and they were just marvellous ambassadors for, for the radio stations. And, and the fact that they used to go out and get drunk with the DJs Actually, um, you know, made uh, people in the business fraternity that were, you know, commercially involved with the radio stations. It made them love the radio stations even more because these these larger than life managing directors would be at the forefront of any party action going on. And I love those days. And I haven't worked in commercial radio for a very, very long time now since I left Global however long ago that is, eight, nine years ago. Um, but from what I hear, you know, commercial radio really lacks those big characters these days. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I say, look, your CV is impressive. And um, just to, to, to name a few, I mean, the return to Swansea Sounds, Sunshine uh, in Herefordshire. Um, and then more oh, recently... Oh, yeah, I'd, forgot, I'd forgotten all about that one. <laughs> and, um, and, then, and then more recently... Thanks for reminding me. Well, this is the thing. So I remember when I, I messaged you a couple of months back saying we're going to do these podcasts, and you said, love to. And then I said, send me the list of stations. It was just ridiculous. Uh, but, but more recently, Sean, you, you're doing the work for the BBC. Are you enjoying your time doing that? Absolutely love it. I mean, a couple of those radio stations that you've mentioned there, I must also mention KCFM in Hull, I was the uh, the programme director of. Uh, but yes, I, I had an amazing time at Global Radio in Leicester Square. I was a network uh, presenter there working again for Richard Park uh, much more intensely this time. That was 
absolutely amazing. And the only reason why I left was because they turned uh, gold, the gold network, uh, where I was doing uh, the mid-morning show at the end, they turned it into a non-stop music station outside of breakfast. So apart from the breakfast DJ, we all got laid off, uh, which I wasn't so sad about because I'd already started working for the BBC, BBC Radio Sussex and BBC Radio Surrey at the weekends, which Richard Park was very kind enough to let me do. So I had somewhere to go. I know a lot of people left global, didn't know what they were going to do. I already had the BBC and I only ended up coming to the BBC and doing more. And there is a guy at this stage who I must thank, and he's still my boss to this day, who's made so many things happen for me at the BBC, a man by the name of Mark Cars, who's a wonderful radio man, and probably has been my best boss in terms of the way he's dealt with me personally, and the way that he's encouraged everything that I do at the BBC. He's given me an outlet for all of that, and I will be eternally grateful to Mark, because not only am I still at BBC Radio Sussex and BBC Radio Surrey, as I'm talking to you now, I'll be on the afternoon afternoon show today from two o'clock and I, I do uh, a podcast myself well in actual fact it's a BBC radio series which has become a podcast it's my radio one and uh, really we celebrate the first 20 years of radio one when it was uh, probably the biggest music radio station in the world the halcyon days and we have uh, a series, BBC Radio series called My Radio One, uh, which is uh, not only broadcast on BBC Radio, but it's on BBC Sounds and then available on all other podcast platforms. And it's been a rip-roaring success, I am so thrilled to say. And we've had all the big hitters be parts of it. We don't only talk to the DJs, we talk uh, to the production staff behind the success of the network during those 20 years. We, uh, we've done another series, Top of the Pops Playback, uh, where we go back and revisit old editions of Top of the Pops with the with the pop stars that did those shows originally, and and the dancers, Pans People, Legs and Co. I mean, the BBC has opened up to me so much creatively, and I am a massive supporter of the BBC. I get so irate when I read the nonsense that's written about the BBC on social media. You will find that most of the people who write it. Uh, I've got some axe to grind with the BBC for whatever reason. They could be presenters who, for whatever reason, the BBC didn't want to employ. There's nothing special about me. I am just one of the lucky ones that the BBC wanted to employ. There are much better presenters than me, DJs than me, that didn't end up on the BBC. But I am very proud to be at the BBC for nearly 10 years now. And I don't really imagine myself being anywhere else, to be honest. I think, you know, when the day comes that the BBC gets rid of me, and that may well be sooner rather than later, I'm not sure I'm ever going to do anything else on the radio, to be honest, because I have had such an amazing time over these last 10 years that anything else would be a massive disappointment for me personally after being at the BBC because it has been everything I dreamed of, of working for and more. But that's just my personal experience. That was beautiful, that, Sean. You should have played music under that. That would have brought it alive. <laughs> what, Simon Bates' <laughs> R-Tune music? <laughs> All right, listen, um, Sean, we're coming to the end of Crunch and Roll. I mean, uh, we could have, as I've said several times, we could have talked a lot longer with Sean Tilly because your, your career has been has been wonderful and long and uh, some major hitters in there as well. Let me just, just quick fire questions, Sean. 
highlights for you? Oh, there's so many. I mean, I've, I've interviewed some incredible people in my time to be. When I was at Radio Luxembourg, I interviewed Robin Williams, for goodness sake, and, and Robert De Niro. Can you believe it? I actually interviewed wow. Robert De Niro. I mean, he didn't want to be interviewed by me, uh, but but it was when Goodfellas came out, and, and I did. I, I, I went around the country and, and compared tours, you know, um, a Bross, when Bross were at the height of Bross mania and introduced them on stage. I mean, it was, I can still hear the screams now. Things like that, you know, I think when I was on Radio Luxembourg, it was not long after the Berlin Wall uh, came down that Mike Hollis and myself traveled to a little village called Sonderhausen in the eastern part of Germany. And, and it took about eight or nine hours to drive there from Luxembourg. And it was incredible because as we drove through the, the former West Germany, there were all these uh, Audis and BMWs um, and Mercedes on the autobahns. And then as we got into the eastern part of Germany, everybody was driving around in tiny Trabants. The, the stark difference between wealth and poverty, because the wall had only come down a, a couple of months before. Uh, it was to, to be so young and in that position. And we went to this little village to compare uh, the first ever open air rock concert in the former East Germany. We were the compares, Mike and I. And on the bill was Snap, uh, who had a huge hit at the time with The Power. Um, uh, Labby Sifri was on the bill. The Farm, who were huge at that time. It was just before they brought out um, the Groovy Train and all together now. And we were all in this hotel. And, and to be in the eastern part of Germany at that time, and Radio Luxembourg, the English service, had more listeners in that part of Germany than even the German service of RTL. And, and those people used to ring us at night to tell us that when the wall came down, they still couldn't get to various members of their family because they were still trapped on the eastern side and they were on the western side. And these people used to ring us up at night in floods of tears telling us their personal story because we were more than DJs to them. We were friends, you know. And if ever it brought home the power of radio to me, it did at that time. And I'm glad I realized that at such a young age, just how important radio is to, to people, particularly when they've got such troubled lives, when their private lives are in sheer devastation. The fact that we were on the radio every night playing pop music to them, uh, when they had all that stuff going on, where they didn't even know whether members of their family were still alive, to be on a radio station that meant that much to that many people, I think that probably is the career highlight, although there have been many, many years, because I'm so fortunate to have done this job for the best part of 40 years now. Blimey, Sean, I thought you were going to say getting uh, a car with your face on the side, uh, but that was uh, that was different gravy, that level, I'll tell you. <laughs> that, look, before, before, before... That was the low light. <laughs> Yeah, I tell you what, Sean. I mean, look, I, I spent a year with you. I think uh, you, your passion for radio was incredible. You, you, you are right. You work very hard. Your knowledge of music is second to none. There's nobody else on this planet that knows music like you. Uh, and you're just a nice guy, Sean. So I, I would like to. I've just one more question, and something which has baffled me for for, for a few years actually about you, Sean, because you are definitely punching above your weight when it comes to your wife. <laughs> Well, it's the size of my personality. <laughs> ego. Yeah, uh, ego. Uh, yeah, the the uh, yes, just the enormous proportion of my charisma. <laughs> I even met her at a radio station. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that because uh, my wife is an incredible, 
uh, person and has given me, uh, I've got five kids and has given me my, my youngest two and to go, th- I mean, that's the only thing that means more to me than, than radio is, is, is my family. And I'm lucky I've got five children between the ages of 29 and eight. Uh, I know what you're going to say. I don't look old enough. Even though I'm talking to you now, I, I have silver hair. This is on video, this bit. Uh, but yes, my wife, um, Opal, um, and I couldn't do any of this without her. Exceptional woman. Sean, thank you so much for being on Crunch and Roll. It's, uh, I, I've not seen you for such a long time. We must, and I'm going to say it, and we never will, but um, we must meet for a beer very soon. Absolutely. I mean, uh, are you still Midlands way? I am. Yeah, Worcestershire. Uh, my 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 eldest three live in Worcestershire. Oh, so there we, uh, go. <laughs> we we have to. Yeah, I've only just told you that because <laughs> yeah. I've been dodging. I've been dodging you for for so many years. <laughs> no, but I, it's an absolute pleasure to be on this podcast. I love the sound of this podcast, and I and I've seen the other guests that you have got lined up as well. So I, I'm 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 humbled that you'd want to talk to me. Bless and me. Uh, and again, Foxy, thank you for the year that we had together in the mid noughties uh because um that was a special year and i thoroughly enjoyed not only working with you but especially drinking with you <laughs> oh yeah you'll be listening to crunch and roll with me sean tilly subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get every new episode as soon as it drops crunch and roll is a 969 media production presented by john foxy fox and produced by simon bullocksy 